Well, let's pray and ask that God would help us. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for your word and how it guides and leads, instructs, admonishes, rebukes, corrects, and gives us life. And Father, we are thankful for genealogies and how they speak to us of your goodness and faithfulness in keeping your promise. Father, this morning, may we leave from here trusting you more, hoping in you more, delighting in you more, and pleasing you because we simply cling to your promises. Help us in every way, Father, so that we would grow in our faith. We ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, a genealogy. Sometimes we wonder, what is it here for? What's it all about? What do we have here in the middle of Luke, the first part of Luke, chapter 3, all of a sudden Luke drops of genealogy. And so what's the point, right? But believe it or not, it has some pretty practical application for us. And we're going to see that at the end as it kind of comes together. But it also reveals to us the importance that God has placed upon particular, I mean particular, people that he has passed his promise through. And he did this and he kept a record for us, for our faith, that we would truly see that we could see, evidentially, it could be proven that indeed Jesus was the Messiah and too that God keeps his promises. And this morning, I truly would like all of us to come away from here, come away from this particular genealogy and say, praise God for this genealogy for it strengthens my faith in him and bolsters my confidence in his promise. Because he indeed is a good God and he indeed is faithful. And that's the goal this morning, for us to really get to see how good and faithful God is. But before we get into the specifics of the genealogy, it begins in verse 23 with an interesting statement, which I think we won't spend a lot of time on, but it's there almost in passing, but there's, it's somewhat significant. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, 30 years of age... Why, do you, why did it mention it? Well, we could quickly pass that off and say, well, it just gives you a reference point to where he's at in life. But I think there's more to it than that. Because spe- specifically when you realize that Joseph, when he went into power in Egypt and ascended to, this, to his office, he was 30 years old. David, when he took the throne, guess how old he was? You see the connection? <laughs> He was 30 years old. Wow. And a priest didn't go into office, was not ordained into his office until he was 20 years old. No, you're right, 30 years old. 30 years old. So when Jesus shows up and it mentions that he's 30 years old, and if we've been reading our Bibles and thoroughly doing Bible studies and understanding age and the reason why God mentions age, and all of a sudden here he mentions Jesus, it would be no coincidence that Jesus is 30 years old when he enters into this particular office. In fact, if we're reading our Bibles and studying and looking at these particulars, we might even be able to predict, possibly, 
Someone could say, hey, what age do you think Jesus would be when he'd enter into his office? Some bright student in the back might say, I think it's going to be 30. And for those reasons mentioned, he, he could have safely almost predicted it because God works like this. This is what our God is like. He, he, it isn't just wild and random. It is very calculated, systematic, and mathematical. God does these things. This is the way he works. And this is why numbers throughout, whenever you see a number, raise a flag. What, that's significant. And if you ever want to do something really fun, we got talking about this yesterday, just go through the Bible and... Do a search on numbers, like what's the significance of 7, what's the significance of 4, 3, 12, 40, and you're going to find a fascinating study on numbers, because God works marvelously through these numbers, and he uses it to communicate to his people. So there's a, it starts off with the age of Jesus being 30, and then it jumps into this, this extended genealogy. However, if you look at this genealogy, do you know where else there's one in the New Testament? It's also in Matthew. And Matthew, it's at the very beginning. It just comes right out of the gate with a genealogy. However, these two genealogies are somewhat different. They're, they're, they're strikingly different, actually. For example, the one in here in Luke starts with Jesus, and it backs its way up all the way to Adam. The one in Matthew starts with Abraham and goes down to Jesus. And then they diverge. At David, Luke's gospel goes in a different direction than Matthew's. Oddly enough, in in Matthew, when it gets to David, it goes through Solomon in his line. In Luke, through Nathan. Now, Nathan is actually the third son of Bathsheba. Solomon was the firstborn son, and as we know, he became king. And we have to wonder why. What's going on? What's the point of all this? Well, part of it has to do with purposes. The purposes of each gospel. Do you realize who Matthew was written to? Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And a Jewish audience, you know, it's the most important thing for them. If you're going to prove that Jesus is Messiah... You want to show, and they're, you know, especially more importantly than, than Adam for them, is Abraham. You want to show his connection because he's going to be the promised seed of Abraham. So you want to show, prove his connection to Abraham, first of all. Second of all, you want to prove his connection to David because the Messiah was going to be the son of David who had come from him, right? And that's exactly what Matthew does. On the other hand, you have Luke, and he goes the other direction. Luke's purpose is what? He's trying to show the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man, the Son of God. And he's trying to prove that his and show his connection to Adam, and and more importantly, as we're going to see, actually through Mary. Because we have to ask the question, why is this genealogical difference happening. Why would Luke connect Jesus to Nathan and then into David? And why would Matthew connect, go through the other way up through Solomon? Can you have it both ways? Yes, you can. 
You can if it's through two different parents. We both have paternal and maternal lines, right? If you do a genealogy, you just don't go up through one parent. You go up through both parents to see where those lines lead. So that's a a clear on-the-surface explanation. So I want to argue this morning that actually what we have in Luke is a genealogy of Mary, of Mary's line, and it's because of Luke's purposes. Luke wants to show his readers that this Jesus is indeed the Son of Man, that he is indeed the Son of Mary, the one, this, this God-man, right? And so in, with his purposes, well, I'm going to show us why this actually holds true. First of all, from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke has emphasized Mary and her role, right? That's really significant. A lot of the particulars are about Mary and her visions and what happens with Mary. And where's Joseph in Luke? Do you hear from Joseph? You don't hear much from Joseph at all, do you? He's kind of in the background. We know he's there, but he's just like this background character. If you're to go read in Matthew, do you realize what's going to happen? It's going to be flipped right around. You don't hear a lot from Mary. You hear a lot about Joseph. And you know why? Because Joseph's a pivotal role. Joseph's Jesus' legal parent, and through him, he's the rightful heir to the throne. Joseph's line goes through Solomon to David, and David, if you follow the line through Joseph, you have the rightful line to the throne, and that's what he's trying to prove. Mary's in the background because of the purposes of the author. They're trying to prove. Where Luke, again, he's trying to show that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man. And who did Jesus biologically come through? Mary, right? And so this is very important. This purpose helps us to see and understand why, why the difference. So, secondly, the names are different from David down to Jesus. Let's look at that for, for a moment. This means that we have specifically two different lines with completely different names. And as I'd mentioned, where does Matthew come from? If you start from David, it goes through Solomon down in Luke through Nathan, his th- uh, Bathsheba's third son, and down. Both sons are born of, Bathshe- uh, of Bathsheba. And this, this is as obvious, this is a, a, a very distinct and obvious difference. If you were to read the two, and these two Gospels were in circulation at that time, it wouldn't take much, especially with, a, with the, the massive Jewish, Jewish audience that they had at that time within the church, to say, hey, we got a discrepancy in genealogies here. Do you realize the Jews are crazy about genealogies? They are meticulous about it. They're all, they want to know their connection. For them to prove that they're children of Abraham is of the utmost importance. And for them, for you, for you to prove that Jesus was Messiah, do you realize you would have to do? You, you would have to show meticulously that Jesus is indeed the son of David, son of Solomon, so on and so forth. That's, he's the line because that's the line of promise. So they would have saw the discrepancy. And at that time, if, if this was like a flaw, oops, <laughs> We made a mistake. We got, we got two different lines here. We need to do an edit. They would have done an edit. It would have been changed. It would have said, this is actually wrong. But that wasn't the case, was it? No. We, it went through the early church and went through all the, you know, the, the Jewishness of the church. They understood. They, they saw that the, these, the, there was a discrepancy here. 
and nothing was done about it. And this leads me to my third point. The verbal construction within Luke's genealogy makes this argument make sense. If you look at, I don't know what kind of translation you use. If, how many here use ESV? How many here use something other? We got a couple, two, just two, three. I don't know if you're looking at it at all. Some translations, if you look at Luke's genealogy, it'll italicize all the sons except the one where it says the son as was supposed of Joseph. That's the one son that's not italicized. And in your translation, when you read English and you see an italicized word, do you know what that means? It means that that particular word is not in the original. They added it to help you out, to help you out and help you understand it. That's why they italicize it. So if it's italicized, here's something you need to note. All the sons in this genealogy, if you look at it, it says son of... Uh, son of Halai, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of, you know, on and on, son of, son of, son of, son of. The original Greek does not have son there at all. It just says of, of, of. So, why did Luke do that? That's a good question. Why? Why would he leave out son throughout except in the place where he says the supposed son of Joseph. As other commentators have pointed out, because this was a little bit interesting and confusing all at the same time, helping me to understand this, Luke is purposefully adding a quick side note about Jesus being the supposed son of Joseph and then showing how he's actually the biological son of Mary through her line. The point of saying he's the supposed son wasn't like Luke was <laughs> supposedly. Uh, he, he's understand that people in that day supposed him to be. They, you know, oh, he's the son. These two were engaged and married and have a child, and it's supposed. It was the. It was believed. He was believed and understood and thought of in that in the community around to be the son of Joseph. And so he's throwing it in. So it's supposed because he's going to show here that he's actually he's truly the biologically, like when we're talking biologically, the son of actually Mary. So, in this case, if this was being the case, it would clear up the meaning if the sentence were translated in Greek like this. Now, hold on for a second. Listen to this, because it it affects how you would perhaps understand or translate it, because there's freedom. In Greek, they don't arrange a sentence like we do. You get all the words figured out, and you take English construction, and then you have to rearrange because we we go subject, verb, object. We have a different way of constructing a sentence where they don't do it like that. So that's the most confusing thing about reading Greek. You read it, and it isn't just words that you're trying to figure out. It's, It's like scrambled eggs. Now you have to say, how do I put this together in a sentence like we would do it? This is why learning and understanding another language is so good for you to learn and understand your own. Because if you don't know how to construct technically your own language, you're confused. Because <laughs> we just do it naturally with one another when we speak and, and when we write and stuff like that. But when you go from another language to our languages, it really shows you that you don't understand your own language all that well. 
Jared's in the back nodding his head. He's, he's in the middle of this. So, if you were to translate it this way, it would help clear it up. So, like this. Jesus himself, supposedly Joseph's son, was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, being of Halai, of Bethat, of Levi, etc., etc. This way, it, it separates Joseph as a, a side note and doesn't make it look like it starts with Joseph. The way they've translated it makes it look like he's the son of Joseph, supposedly son of Joseph, son of, son of, son of. It's like he's doing a genealogy through Joseph. So it kind of misleads you to, to right away think it's through Joseph. But he, it's just a, it's a parenthetical statement off to the side. He was the supposed son of Joseph. But in reality, he's really of he doesn't say the son. He says he's really of this line. And that helps to clear up. Oh, he's, he's not trying to show that he's through the line of Joseph. He's actually through this other line, which, you know, many have said this is Mary's line. This is the way where she comes from. So, another question we might ask. Okay, okay, okay. Got, got, got what you're kind of saying here. Why then did it not mention that this was Mary's line? Jesus, son of Mary, you know, daughter, and then it would have to go daughter of, and then flip back to son of, and everything. It's because they don't do genealogies like that. In their culture, it's always through the male line. This is how you prove your genealogy. And they might interject a, a woman if, if there was no man in that family and there was like a little break, they might show her. Or in, in Matthew's case, because there's very significant Gentile women who were included in the genealogy because those were very, very significant interjections throughout. But in this case, this is why. They just don't do genealogies like that. That's not what they do. There's much more to be said about this. If you guys are ever interested in learning all why this is Mary's genealogy, you can grab commentaries and read more stuff. But I'll leave it to suffice it to say this. The reason why there's a difference is because Luke's purposes are different than Matthew's. He's showing that Jesus is indeed the son of man, the seed of the woman in the beginning, the son of David, through the line of Mary, biologically where Matthew's purposes are different. They're showing two Jews that Jesus was the rightful son of Abraham, son of David, the rightful Messiah, legally. But here's the main point. Here's the main purpose. Why does God give us this genealogy? And I'm saying it's through Mary. Why? Because God has, shown, God has made promises. And God is showing that he keeps his promises. He keeps his word meticulously. First of all, let's begin with this geology, genealogy backwards. It ends with the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was made by God. God begot Adam. Adam's in the beginning. And we all know what happens to Adam, right? Adam sins and plummets the whole race into sin and death. Does God leave it like that? No. God promises, right? He promises. And he doesn't just promise randomly. He promises specifically. This is what he says in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, he talk, referring to Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
the first gospel announcement in all of Scripture. God proclaims right there in the midst of the curse the promise of salvation and deliverance from the evil one. The first promise, but it's specific, isn't it? It's not just a random promise. It's specific. And how is it specific? What does he say? Offspring. Key word. Other translations say seed. It's technically seed. But offspring is the same meaning. So, through whose? There is enmity, a division, a war, a battle that you will see fleshed out through all the genealogies, the sons of the devil and the sons of God. And but you know what's interesting here? God says, and he's really specific, isn't he? Whose seed will Messiah come through? Who will he? He doesn't say Adam, which is very interesting, does he? Isn't it? He says of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring. Her. Who's this particular offspring going to come through? Her. Who does he come through biologically? Mary. Her. The woman. This isn't just a random detail. This is significant and important. God says, I'm gonna, it's going to come through your offspring, her, the woman. And indeed, when it arrives, who does he come through? It's not, the, it's not the immaculate conception with a man. It's the immaculate conception with a woman. It comes through her offspring. Mary has Jesus. This proves, that the genealogy proves here, that Jesus is the seed of the woman, that Jesus is the offspring of the woman, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis 3.15. We also see that Jesus was the offspring of Abraham. And why is that important? Because of a promise given to Abraham. Genesis 22.18, which Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22 are elaborations of the same covenant promise with a little bit more detail. In 22.18, he says, By your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, who is he talking to? Abraham, right? By your offspring, by your seed. So who is he talking to in Genesis 3.15? By the woman. So it's got to come through the woman, and it's got to come through Abraham. Significant, through your seed. Through your seed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the great promise given to Abraham. And then Paul makes it clear in Genesis 3.16, when he says, who is this all referring to? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. See, God is particular, isn't he? He's very specific. To your offspring. Who is Christ, Paul says. That's who he's referring to. Christ. The reason why it's singular and not plural, it's not going to be through your offsprings, through all your children. It's going to be this one particular Seed, this one particular offspring through your line is going to, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God was very specific. Who do you think Abraham thought this seed was? Isaac. The child of promise. But Isaac failed. It wasn't Isaac. 
had to wait a long time before the true seed showed up. But nonetheless, we see in this particular genealogy why the specific detail and why is he an offspring of Abraham? That's the promise. That's the promise. God promises a thousands of years prior, and he's, he's going to watch meticulously. I am going to fulfill my word. Jesus is also the son of David. As, God's pro, as God promised in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Do you know what's interesting about the two genealogies? Is that this is exactly where they they split. Because, think of this, all to be fulfilled. A seed of a woman, the woman, the seed of Abraham, and now the son of David, for all three, it's going to be through this woman's line. This woman ends up, Mary, coming through David, through Nathan. Now he's the son of David. But yet the legal parent, Joseph, he's also the son of David which, through Solomon, which gives him the right to the throne. This proves that this, this right here, Luke chapter 3, what does it prove to you? What is God in meticulous detail proving to you? Do you want evidence? Do you want confirmation? Do you want to know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Son of Man, the promised seed, the promised seed of, uh, given to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and to David? Do you want particular specific evidence that he is? Here it is. Jesus is indeed the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David. Proven, meticulously. Why did these Jews, why were they so meticulous? For them, they didn't even know what they're doing. They were cranky about genealogy. And after the destruction in Jerusalem, no Jew to this day can figure out where they're from because the whole thing was destroyed. You know why? It's not needed anymore. The fulfilled promise has come. Jesus is he's not self-appointed. His credentials don't come because he says, I am who I am. His credentials are proven right here in this genealogy. Jesus was God-appointed. I like how John MacArthur put it in commentating on this. He says, the ancestry of Jesus is important because it proves that he's not merely a self-appointed Messiah, like Hugh Schoenfield in the Passover plot and all their ilk would want us to believe. He's not a misguided reformer. He's not a self-appointed savior. He's not a would-be, wannabe savior of the nation Israel from their terrible stress under the Roman occupation. He's not a man caught up in a popular acclaim. He's not a sort of magician who drew crowds after him and developed a Messiah illusion or a Messiah complex. The genealogy goes back to David and then goes through back through Abraham and then goes back to Adam and then goes back to God finally. This is the culmination of all redemptive history in the person of Jesus. It starts with God through Adam, through Abraham, through David and right down to Jesus himself. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a great man. He's not an isolated prophet. He is not an isolated preacher. 
This is the culmination of all the history of humanity from God, from Adam, through Abraham, through David, down to Jesus. He is the culmination of human history as well as Israel's history. He is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. He is the culmination of all who have ever lived. He is the hope of all humanity. And all humanity is inseparably and eternally connected to him. The fate of everyone who's ever lived is linked to Jesus. End quote. This genealogy proves that Jesus is the man. He's it. He is Messiah. It proves that he is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Right here, right now, Jesus fulfilled God's promises. And this leads me to the personal application that is for us. And something we have to take away from this is to realize that God is unbelievably faithful in the particulars, in the details, to keep his promises. Do you realize we stand in an incredible place in history because so much has gone before us? An incredible cloud of witnesses. They have witnessed to us and testified to us over and over and over again. We've got got the history that God is faithful. God is faithful. God keeps his word. But you you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't keep it in our timing, does he? It's not according to our timetable. It's not the way we like it. But that isn't something God is interested in. God's interested in keeping his word, not in keeping our time frame. For us, sometimes the hardest thing to do is wait. Wouldn't you agree? Waiting stinks. I don't like waiting. Why do I have to wait so long? I don't do well waiting. Do you do well waiting? Wait. I don't want to wait. Wait. Really? Yeah, really. Wait. God says to us, wait. God always seems to take far too long, doesn't he? Far too long. We can understand a little bit of waiting. We can understand, you know, I get waiting... And then there's waiting. And God's into waiting, it seems like. You know, like 4,000 years, make a promise. Oh, wow. You think of all the people that went to their grave looking forward to the promise, the fulfillment. The amount of evil, the amount of sorrow, the amount of affliction, the amount of suffering, the amount of pain in the world. And we wonder, how is it that God could delay How? Where are you, O God? That's our biggest prayer sometimes. Oh, God, do something. Now, please, wait. No, I don't want to wait. We call on God to keep his promise. And he does. He never fails. He just doesn't keep our timetable. Because you know what? God's, faith, sorry, God's timing tests the strongest faith. And yet he's proven from the very beginning that he always keeps his word. Always. As Peter exhorts the church, do not overlook 
this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't think that God is slack in keeping His promise. 2 Peter 3, 8-9. Don't think that God is slack. He's not slack. He's just patient. And with him, man, if he had that kind of timetable, if one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, wow, 4,000 years felt like four days. I didn't wait that long. Yeah, you did. It's like a long time for me. If I lived 80 years, that's a long time. But his God's patience his perspective on time, and our need to grow in our faith and trust Him and hold fast to Him are often what keep His promises seeming like they're just too far away for us. In our reading this morning, Hebrews 11, we hear about the great man that pleased God, Abraham, right? Abraham pleased God. And why did Abraham please God? Because he believed the promise. Abraham was about 75 years old when he's called out of the land of Ur. And God gives him a promise that he's going to have a child. And through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? A child. Well, what does God do? He doesn't just shazam, give him a child. I promise, here it is. No, what does he do? He, he, he waits um, just about 25 years. The guy's 99. He's 100 when the kid's born. Beyond all possibility, beyond the realm of even thinking this was on the, on the horizon. It's just, it's not possible. What? Heck, it wasn't possible when you first promised me, but now it's really not possible. This gets more impossible. And why wait? Why waiting so long? This is getting ridiculous. This is stupid. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. It's like, another year, another year, God promised. He believes God promised. Another year. Oh, God, please, you promised. Where is it? Another year, 25 years. God, I'm like 100 now. Probably a good idea. A little tired. Got to raise this kid. <laughs> it's just one thing after another. Oh, sure, he has the kid. Wow, God keeps his promise. Of course, he always does. Why so long? And then he just takes it to another level. Okay, no, go sacrifice your child to me. What? <laughs> not getting it. Not computing. Not working. <laughs> what, are you, what are you up to? And God, you know, he doesn't say, after he says that, sees him chopping the wood, getting ready, heading out. Okay, stop. I see that you're for real. No? Okay, what's God going to do? Wait. Wait, what's he going to do? Wait, till when? Well, probably right till now. Isn't that like God, it seems like? In all of our lives, the promise, this period of time waiting for fulfillment. And how many went to their graves looking to the promise? Thousands, thousands. But God is not slow, as we might count slowness. He just works on a different timetable. And he's patient. 
And he's more interested in working in us and cultivating in us faith. But boy, I tell you, it's tough, isn't it? The best things in our lives are never the things that we really enjoy doing, usually. We look back on them and I say, I'm so glad that happened. Man, that stunk in the meantime. It was the best thing for me and I hated every bit of it. The best teacher you ever had was like at the time the worst. <laughs> that teacher, they drove me crazy. He was so strict. I was all doing push-ups. It was crazy. But I look back and that was the one that made a difference. That's what it seems like in our lives. It's the times, it's the stuff that makes a difference in our lives. God is faithful. You want to take a lesson away from this genealogy and here see God fulfilling his promise in the specifics, in the details, that God keeps his promise. He makes a promise and he keeps his word. And you and I are at such an advantage because so many have gone before us and have kept the faith and God delivered the promise. Think of what Abraham didn't have. He didn't have the genealogy. He didn't have the cloud of witnesses. He didn't have the track record. He didn't have the promise fulfilled. He didn't see God keep his word the same way for so many times over and over and over again that we did. We're at a distinct advantage. We get to see throughout all history God keeping his word and being faithful. I get to hear your testimony. You get to hear my testimony. We get to see that what? God is faithful, right? That he's faithful. We are at a distinct advantage. we got this massive cloud of witnesses that proclaims to us, God is faithful. Distinct advantage. So you look to Abraham. Say, Abraham, look what you did. God just gave you a promise, and you didn't have all this witness and testimony to it, but you held fast. Oh, God, make me like Abraham. I want you people to know, children of God, God is faithful. His promises will be fulfilled. Don't let go of them. Just because it's been a long time, just because you're weary, just because you feel like, what's the point? I tell you what, the point. It'll make all the sense in the world in the end. Do not lose hope. Hold fast to his promises and hold them to the end. No matter what, no matter what trial, no matter what valley, no matter what suffering, no matter what persecution, no matter what, hold fast. And hold fast to the end. And you'll be so glad you did because God is faithful. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for granting grace and help in our time of need. Thank you for the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus. But through him and in him and by him is the salvation of the world. We are able to draw near to you today because of the promise kept in Jesus. May we look upon Jesus, may we look upon the promise, may we look upon it fulfilled through the genealogy, and may we have confidence and hold fast, not giving up. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.